On episode 73 of the High Performance Leadership Podcast, Leadership Lessons from Prison with Damon West. I am around more people on the outside of prison that are locked up than I ever was on a 3,000-man unit they call the Mark Stodge. You know why? Because more people are in prison by their thoughts than my steel bar. You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast, insights and information from world-class leadership experts. Thanks for joining us. I'm Randy Lane. On today's show, we're talking with Damon West. The former college quarterback spent seven years in a maximum security prison after being sentenced to 65. That's considered life in the state of Texas. Now Damon's on the outside and sharing the lessons he's learned to inspire and give hope to others. Settle back. This is a long episode, but I promise it's a good one. And now here's my talk with Damon West. You've got kind of a crazy story. I was trying to read on your website your story, and I was just kind of blown away. I'm sure there are way more details that I really want to hear about. Can you kind of tell me your story? Yeah, I grew up in a town called Port Arthur, Texas, right down here on the Gulf Coast, Mm -hmm. uh, Texas, right where Texas, Louisiana meet. And wonderful home. My father, Bob West, is a sports writer there for almost 50 years, real famous sports writer down in this area. My mother, Jeannie, is a nurse for almost three or four decades. Got an older brother named Brandon, younger brother named Grayson. My parents were big into civil rights in the early 70s. My father was was one of the first sports writers down in Port Arthur to put a black athlete on the front page of the sports page, on the front page of the football section. And uh, that guy was a guy named Joe Washington. You know, it's interesting, Randy, my dad's got a box of hate mail at home to prove what that decision was like in 1971. I always give that part of my background when I'm going around doing my presentation to college football programs to schools over the country to let them know that I came from two people that had a strong moral compass and they, they raised us. I mean, so a lot of a lot of white families moved out of Fort Arthur in the 70s and 80s, but my parents kind of dug in their heels and stayed because they wanted their kids to go to integrated schools, and we did. We had a, I had a great family life. My mom was one of those moms that had a prayer plaque or a cross in every room in the house. I mean, and, so, and a lot of people have moms like that. Mm-hmm. You couldn't escape God in this woman's home, right? So... We had some difficulties as a family. When I was nine years old, 1985, I came out and told my parents my babysitter had been molested. And this is childhood sexual abuse in the 80s. So they did everything they could. They sent me to counseling. They sent me to the family priest. And we prayed about it because that's what we did to our family. We, we, we prayed a lot. God's a big part of our home. But something inside that little nine-year-old boy went to a really dark place. And being in recovery today, I can look back on this as being the activating event in my life where my addiction comes in. When I'm 10, I start putting chemicals in to change the way I feel. I start get, getting into my dad's beer and the refrigerator. I go to friends' houses who have liquor cabinets and sneak drinks. I'm doing this all by myself, though. And by the time I'm 12, I start smoking pot. So I'm into mm-hmm. criminal addictive behavior at a young age. And, and I've got a lot of character issues developing. But because I can throw a football really well, I mean, God blessed me with a lightning bolt for right arm. This is Texas, you know. So, I mean, Texas high school football is huge. I was a three-year starter on my, my high school varsity team. I went on to get a scholarship at the University of North Texas. Uh, went went to college with hopes and dreams of being a college quarterback. Not not so much getting my education. I mean, I did. I got a I got a scholarship and I, I graduated. But I really had a, an overwhelming focus on playing college football, and, and to a point that we say it's kind of unhealthy focus because I didn't have any contingency plans if that ever failed. And, Right. I came to a fork in the road in life, September 21st, 96, against Texas A&M. You know, I'm finally the starting quarterback. I'm 20 years old. Go out and take the field that day. By the third play of the game, I'm hurt. My college football career was over. Mm. At that, I separated my shoulder. And at that fork in the road, I had to make a choice. You know, to put something good in my life to replace where athletics was 
or put bad things in. And that's what I did. I put in more drugs, you know, cocaine, ecstasy pills, you name it. And the addiction just got worse from there. Went on to graduate University of North Texas in 99, went to work in the United States Congress in Washington for a congressman named Gene Green out of Houston. Worked for a guy running for president of the United States in 2004, uh, got him big gap art. And when that campaign was over, I went to work for one of the biggest Wall Street banks in the world, UBS, trained to be a stockbroker okay. in, their da- in their Dallas branch right there in University Park. And it was at that job that I was introduced to methamphetamine for the first time by another broker. You know, my life went off the rails. Methamphetamine, you, you enter, that, enter that into the life of an addict. And meth is one of those drugs, Randy, that it's it's unforgiving. It's, it's, a, it's mm-hmm. a relentless drug. I smoked that drug one time, bam, instantly hooked. I mean, it, I couldn't give up everything fast enough. My job, my home, my car, my savings account, my family, my tethering to God, all gone. I gave it away. I went from working on Wall Street to living on the streets of Dallas. It was there uh, living with a bunch of other meth addicts in one of these meth dens that I got into the criminal underworld with that. Because that's what addicts do. Addicts do whatever they have to do to get the drugs. I don't have a job. None of these other people living with me have jobs. And so we started stealing. We started breaking into storage units, started breaking into cars, and you know, I tell people all the time, don't let this clean-cut, polished-looking guy fool you. I mean, today, Randy, I work for one of the best law firms in the state of Texas, a pro bono law firm down here in Beaumont, one of the biggest plaintiff firms there is. But don't let any of that fool you, because today I have recovery. I mean, I have a program of recovery, but if I'm in my addiction, I live like an animal, and I, and I steal from anybody I have to. That's what addicts do, and it escalated. It escalated from breaking into storage units of cars to home burglary, and we started breaking into Houses in the neighborhood where I once lived in Uptown Dallas. They called these the Uptown Burglaries. Hmm. That's the moniker I'll have to live with the rest of my life. I'll always be known as the Uptown Burglar for the choices I made. And I heard a lot of people along the way, Randy. I, I try to always make sure I talk about my victims anytime I tell this story because they're the most important part of my story because they're the people that were affected the most by the, the choices I made. These people did nothing wrong, yet they are without their property. More important things is that uh, their sense of security. I stole these people's sense of security. I don't know if they ever get that back. And so it's one of those things that they have to live with that for the rest of their lives, and, and so do I. So, uh, but on July 30th, 2008, a Dallas SWAT team came into this little meth den that I was living in, this little apartment. And they came in, and I always tell people all the time, they didn't just arrest me that day, they rescued me. They pulled me out of the situation I couldn't get myself out of. And they came into the windows, the doors, screaming, you know, don't move, don't move. And, and, and I knew it was over. They zip tied me and took me back to Dallas County Jail and fingerprinted me, mugshot. You know, there's a mugshot that, that goes with it, my presentation all the time. And you can see a totally different person because that guy's dead. That guy that committed all those burglaries and, and was a meth addict is dead. I mean, I'll still be an addict in recovery, but but that guy's dead. And the, the odyssey I went on through from there was just, God, within 24 hours in, in, in jail, they put me into a a pod in Dallas County Jail, and I was in a fight over a breakfast tray, and, and I was scared, Randy. I mean, prison and jail is, is the most terrifying environment if you've never been in there before. So, I mean, I always, yeah, I always like to tell people, I mean, I, I'm not a tough guy. I'm not, I mean, you're capable of way more than you think you are, mm-hmm. but you, when you get dropped in that, that, that environment, it, it's eye-opening and scary. And frankly, I wanted to talk to my parents. I wanted to, to talk to my mother and father who I had pushed out of my life. I mean, anybody that's ever been through addiction knows that you push the people out that are closest to you that want to talk reason to you, talk sense to you. But I pushed them completely out of my life, Randy. So I didn't even know if they knew where I was. When I called home that first time, my father, who, you know, that old, older guy that's sports writer, he's in his 70s. You know, I've never seen my dad cry. 
but I heard him cry that one time when I called home. And he was mm. ringing the phone. You know, Damon, how did we go so wrong with you? Where did we mess up so bad? And what could we have done different? He's crying. I'm crying. We can't get anything done. My mom grabs that phone and she's got this, you know, she's a nurse. She's used to traumatic situations. So she grabs that phone. And she says, baby, listen, you know, your father can't talk, but we've got to talk. I, she said, you need to understand that we love you no matter what. We love you unconditionally. And we always will. That's the deal we made with God when he loaned you. She said, but uh, we've given you back to God now. You're you're at a place where we can't even get to anymore. She said, you're, you're now a captive audience to God. You better start listening. I'll never forget what you said. And then she asked me a question. She said, baby, do you remember that prayer plaque that I had on your wall as a kid growing up? And, you know, I told you my mom had one of these in every room in the house. So, I mean, I, I'm, I, I've been out on a mess for four years, Randy. I can't even think about what I had for the last meal. I said, no, mom, I don't. To the tears, I told her I don't. She said, baby, it's Footprints in the Sand. Do you remember the story of Footprints in the Sand? And Randy, I couldn't think of Footprints in the Sand. I couldn't even think of anything. So she patiently and lovingly retold me the story of Footprints in the Sand about a guy, you know, walking on the beach with God and watching the video play out of his life in the sky. And and she said, uh, every time something good happened in his life, there's two sets of footprints walking side by side. She said, but every time something bad happens, when there's pain, there's hurt, there's suffering, there's loss, there's only one set of footprints. And finally, the guy can't take it anymore. So he calls God out and asks him, you know, hey, God, what's up? How come there's only one set of footprints every time something goes wrong? Why do you abandon me? That's when she said, you know, God said, Damon, you fool. I didn't abandon you. I carried you. So, Randy, this begins a journey of where I get back. And my mom tells me, you know, she's like, baby, look down that jail right now. There's only one set of footprints. I don't want to lose my son. And so I started getting back in touch with a God that I had grown so distant and far apart from with drugs and other other things that have gone on in my life since that injury really in college. That's where my journey begins in the penitentiary. And I'm in the county jail at that point. But that's where my, my journey begins. I, you know, I had to surrender get on God's back, it hit rock bottom. And that that's rock bottom's coming up. I mean, shortly thereafter, when I go to trial, that's rock bottom. So I'm in county jail and I had that conversation with my moms. I started talking to God, but tell you what my prayer sounded like. But I don't have a foundation for prayer anyway at this point. I don't have a foundation for anything that's meaningful. So I'd get on my knees for 10 months while I wait to go to trial and ask God every night, God, please get me out of this jam. And if you do, let me tell you what I'll do for you. You know, so it's like Clean I'm with God. Now. Yeah, so God waits for me to wake up every morning so we can run the universe. Like, well, I sure hope they can run this universe. You know? No, it doesn't work like that. So right. I'm, I'm pleading with God. I'm telling God, look, here's the deal. You get me out of this, and I'll go be a normal guy again. I'll go get a job, and I'll just smoke meth on the weekend. Yeah, and that's, that's the best I could come up with. But obviously, that prayer didn't get answered. It didn't even make it to his inbox. I go to trial 10 months after I get arrested. The evidence is overwhelming. I mean, it's, it's very evident that I'm, I'm guilty of engaging in organized crime. That's my charge, which carries a maximum sentence of life in prison. My attorney at the time, we go back and forth going up, leading up to trial. And he's like, no, Damon, this is this is a burglary case. So we're not guilty to engage in organized crime. But honestly, at that point, I wasn't capable of accepting responsibility for the things I did anyway. So I go to trial. Six days of testimony later, hmm. a jury is gone for 10 minutes deliberating on my punishment. 10 minutes. That's never good. Oh, my God. If you sit in the defense table in 10 minutes, uh, you're, in, you're, in, you're in big trouble. Right. So at the end of that 10 minutes, they came back out to get me. I didn't even have time to eat the bologna sandwich they give you whenever you're sitting in the holding cell. So I go back in there. I ask my lawyer, how bad is it? She looks out. I have two lawyers. The one that was a woman, she, Karen, looks over at me. She said, it's bad. She said, one of the jurors sent a question in and wanted to know if they could give you life without parole. <sighs> yeah. This is a non-aggravated. These are property crimes. I'm not trying to downplay what I did, but these are property crimes when no one was home. This jury was angry at me, and rightly so. And so the judge galloped the court back in. Judge Snipes, you know, he said, Damon Joseph West, you're hereby sentenced to 65 years 
and the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. 65 years, man. I mean, That's crazy. And the only sound I heard in the courtroom was my mother gasped, you know, mm-hmm. like only a mother can make, you know, and it happens just like it does in movies. They was wrong me real quick. They come, they handcuff me and they push me out of the courtroom. And the only thing I could think to say to my mother and father and family who's sitting there in the first row for six days is, I'm sorry, mom. And they take me, they throw me in this little side room right up outside of the courtroom. There's a bulletproof glass right there. Five minutes later, my parents come, in, my mother and my father. And uh, my dad is in stunned disbelief. He just saw his son get a life sentence in prison. A jury just threw, him, threw me away. And he can't even speak, but my mom does. She says, baby, that's in life demand to be paid. She hmm. said, you got hit with one hell of a bill from the state of Texas. Hmm. If you did the things they said you did, you're going to go to prison. You're going to do that time honorably. And uh, you're going to get on God's back like I told you. She said, but Damon, she said, you owe us a debt too. Your, your father and I have given you all the love and opportunity and support to be anything you want to be in life. She said, we gave you a great moral compass. You're from a giant melting pot of a city called Port Arthur, Texas. She said, so here's the debt you're going to pay to us. She said, you're going to go to prison. You're going to get on God's back. You're not going to get some one of these white hate groups, one of these Aryan Brotherhood type groups. Yeah. Because you're scared about the situation you're in because you're the minority now. She said, you are going to go to prison. You're not going to get any gangs. You're not going to get any tattoos. I always tell people to look at me, you know, I turn around like that and no tattoos. Man, my mom told me no. I go to prison, tell everybody no. I told my mom I couldn't get any tattoos. I wouldn't get any tattoos. So she said, baby, do you understand this promise you're going to make to us? I said, yeah, mom, I do. But Randy, I had no clue what I just promised. When I got back to my pod, of course, everybody there is an expert on prison because they've all been, you know, everybody in there has been to prison three or four times. Right. So, Everybody, man, white, black, Hispanic, everybody in between is telling me, man, you're going to have to get to a gang. You know, part of the prison system you're going to is segregated for people with just life sentences. Because 65 is life. 65, anything 60 and above in the state of Texas is a life sentence. Hmm. Calculated. So I just got a life sentence. They said, you got to get to a gang. You're going to go to a building. You can't come off the building for the first five years except to go to the chow hall, go to the law library, go to the chapel. So you're going to fight a lot. Just make your life easier and get to a gang. There was this one guy, though, this old black guy named Jackson. I called him Mr. Jackson out of respect. Mr. Jackson mm-hmm. had been to prison four or five times in his 60s. And uh, he pulls me aside one day. He said, Wes, I've been watching how you're dealing with all these knuckleheads, these dummies. Talk about you got to get to a gang. He said, you don't have to do that. He said, don't, don't even do that. He said, keep that promise you made to your parents to God. He said, well, let me tell you what prison is going to be like. He said, first thing you need to know is prison is all about race. He said, race runs the institution. It's the most disgusting environment you'll ever see. He says, don't get into a wreck over race. He said, second of all, you're going to get into a lot of fights. There's no way around that. He said, but you don't have to win all your fights, but you do have to fight all your fights. He's telling me never back down from a fight in prison mm-hmm. because they'll devour you. You'll have to fight every day. And uh, since you're not going to get into a gang, he said, you're going to fight all the white gangs first, the Aryan Brotherhood, Aryan Circle, the White Knights of the Woods, get used to it, get ready to fight every one of them. He said, and if you survive all that and don't succumb to one of their gangs, he said, then you're going to fight all the black gangs. The Crips, the Bloods, the Gangster Disciples, the Mandingo Warriors. He's naming all these gangs off. Jeez, I had no idea those all those existed, huh? Oh, there's <laughs> there's 20 more that I haven't even named. I mean, so oh gosh. he's saying you're going to fight them all. He said they're all coming for you, and you're on, you're on an island by yourself. There's nobody to fight for you. And that's what the gangs do is people, they scare you when you get in there and say, hey, you need us to survive. But he's telling me you don't need that. And then he gave me an analogy, Randy. And I use this analogy everywhere I go. It's, it has caught fire around the country. And he said, imagine prisons like a pot of boiling water, West. He said, and everything we put in that pot of boiling water is going to be changed by the heat and the pressure in there. He said, I'm going to drop three things in this pot of boiling water we call prison this afternoon. And watch how they change. Watch how the atmosphere changes. 
He said, I'm going to put a carrot and egg in a coffee bean. He said, first things first. He said, let's drop a carrot to pot, this pot of boiling water. He said, what happens when you boil a carrot? I said, well, it turns soft. He said, that's right. He said, the carrot went to prison. It was hard. He went into to that prison. The atmosphere changed that carrot. He said, now the carrot's soft. He got beat. He got robbed. He got raped. And he may have got killed. You don't want to be the carrot. Mm-hmm. He said, now let's drop an egg in that pot of boiling water. See what happens to that egg. So I said, well, the egg's going to turn hard. He said, that's right. He said, the egg went out hard outer shell. The soft liquid inside. The prison changed that egg, too. The atmosphere changed that egg. Now he's hard on the inside, too. He's incapable of giving and receiving love. He said, now that egg is institutionalized. And he can just stay in prison the rest of his life because he's going back the rest of his life into prison anyway. Mm-hmm. He said, but Wes, this, this coffee bean, the smallest of the, of the three things, if I drop a coffee bean into a pot of boiling water, what happens when you boil a coffee bean? And I was stumped. I don't know. Mr. Jackson said, you make coffee. He said, now you have to change the name of the water to coffee. He said, the smallest of these three things had the power to change the entire atmosphere in that pot. Now you're not even talking about hot water anymore. He said, if you're going to survive prison, you're going to have to be like that coffee. You're going to have to go in there and change that environment from the inside out. He said, everybody in life puts out energy, negative or positive. He said, if you walk around and your, your energy is negative, you're going to attract that kind of energy back. He said, but Wes, if you walk around positive with a smile on your face, let these dudes know they're not getting to you, he said, you'll change that prison from the inside out. He said, that's what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to be like that coffee bean. He said, you'll be in that coffee bean gang in prison. He said, if you want to find a lot of the coffee beans, go to that chapel. That's where a lot of them hang out. The last thing he told me, he says, when you get into prison, he said, put your bags down, put uh, put all your stuff down, put your back against the wall, wait for it to happen. He said, it won't take long. He said, the first guy that comes up to you, he's not going to come up to you to do anything to hurt you. He's coming to get information. He said, you tell him whatever you have to do to get him away from you. He said, but the second guy's coming to hurt you. He said, when he gets within range, put your fist in his mouth. And with that, I was off. So, you know, the prison bus comes to pick me up. They call him a bluebird. They chain you up to another man. You're gone. They come pick you up early in the morning. They strip you down in Dallas County Jail, and they check your teeth. They check all your cavities. They, you get on this white jumpsuit, get chained up to another man, get on this bus, and it's crazy on those buses. It's chaos. You know, mm-hmm. People are scared. They're going to prison. You have to stop by a bunch of different places and pick other people up. And by the time you get there, I mean, you're chained up to this guy. If he's got to go to the bathroom, you go to the bathroom. <laughs> if he's got to get in a fight, you go get in a fight. And it happens. There's a lot of fights that go on these buses. A fight happens on our bus, but the guy I'm chained up with, we, we have an understanding when we get on there, hey, look, if anything goes down, I'm coming to you first. We, we tell each other that. So it's an understanding. So you get to prison, and they, they get you out there. They unhandcuff you. They, they strip you down. They body cavity search you. They yell at you. They scream at you. They poke you, they prod you, they take your DNA, they shave your head, they run all these tests on you, and then you get turned loose to your unit of assignment. A unit of assignment was the Mark Styles unit in Beaumont, Texas, which is interesting because I grew up 15 minutes away from the prison. I mean, it's just <laughs> right by Fort Arthur, Texas. So I'm home, right? Not, right. Not, not necessarily <laughs> under the circumstances I ever thought I was going to come home, but right. I'm home, which is good because I'm close to my family, but bad because I'm in prison and I'm in one of the hardest prisons in the state of Texas, mm-hmm. easily one of the hardest. And so when I get to prison, I do exactly what Mr. Jackson said. You know, I put my bag down, and, you know, it didn't take long. Within about 10 minutes, the first guy comes up to me, a little skinhead-looking, little white guy, got no teeth in his mouth, he's got tattoos all over him, comes up, and he says, hey, you know, white boy, what family are you riding with? They call gangs families in prison, Randy. A gang is the furthest thing away from a family. That's a whole other podcast. But <laughs> so this guy says, hey, man, what family are you riding with? I said, hey, man, I'm riding with God. Get out of my face, little guy. He started laughing at me. He said, man, God didn't even hear, man. We, we, we ran God out a long time ago. He said, but we're here. We're coming to get you, white boy. And I swear, man, it may have been 10 more minutes, and here comes the other guy. I mean, this guy is a big, big corn-fed white guy. This guy's huge. 
got swastikas all over his neck, lightning bolts up his arms, veins and muscles ripping out of him. And I remember what Mr. Jackson said, because I'm very coachable. I've, I've played athletics all my life. I can, I can take instruction. So when he got within range, I hit this guy as hard as I could, Randy. This guy, within 20 seconds, this guy dropped me like a bag of rice. I mean, mm. First fight in prison, it's over, man. I've already lost. And that's what I tell people all the time. Did you really expect me to say that I went into prison like Rocky and beat the heck out of everybody? No, man, that's happened. that's in the movie. Right. The reality is a little bit different. I, I went into prison, Randy, and got in a lot of fights. And I lost 75% of my fights. But I learned more about myself from my losses than I ever did from my wins. And, you know, it's one of those deals where you're in your cell. And every time they roll the doors for your cell to come out for child, recreation, day room, showers, or whatever, you dread hearing those words, West, I want to look at you in the shower. There's nothing, there's no gay connotation to, I want to look at you in the shower. It's not physically want to look at you. I want to look at you in the shower means I want to box you in the shower. We're going to fight right now. Because people fight in the showers in prison. There's no guards back there. There's no cameras. And you can wash blood out of the shower pretty easily. Hmm. Man, I got to the point where I'm, it's at the point now where I'm fighting a lot of the black gangs. And, and I'm just sick of it, Randy. And I decide, you know what? I've been putting too many limits on myself. There's got to be there's got to be a better way to earn respect here. So I do. I go out to that rec yard one Monday morning, and I look into my mirror. And a mirror in prison is a dingy piece of metal. It's just kind of polished down, and you can see barely see your reflection. But I realize it, that guy in that mirror has been the one holding me back this whole time, and that's in, true in life. You know, we are the only ones that hold us back. Anytime we let someone else hold us back, we have to give someone permission. So. I look in that mirror and I say this sentence that I learned when I was younger, if it is to be, it is up to me. And it's the most powerful sentence in the English language. It's a permission statement. It's 10 words, 20 letters long, but if it is to be, it's up to me. I go out to that rec yard. And if prison is the most racially charged environment, the rec yard is the most segregated place in the prison I've ever seen in my life. You know, off in the distance of that rec yard, that life in building is a sand volleyball court. And the sand volleyball courts for the whites and the Hispanics only. You have, a, uh, you have a handball court off to the, to the left, and that's where you can play mixed races, but your partner needs to be the same race as you in the life sentence building. Same thing on the weight stack. You want somebody to spot you on the weights, the person spot you better look like you. I pass all that up that day, and I go to the basketball court. I mean, who do you think runs the basketball court? The I can brothers, guess. <laughs> they run it, man. They run it. They run it hard, too. And there's no white guys that can play basketball out there. But, man, look, I'm from Port Arthur. I've been the only white guy on the basketball court before. I was on the white the white kid that was at summer parties, birthday parties. My, you know, I grew up in Port Arthur. It's a giant melting pot of a city. This isn't my first time around a bunch of all black guys playing basketball. And I'm looking at this crowd out there playing, and I'm an athlete. And I'm picking these people off thinking I'm better than that chump, that chump, and that chump. But I got to get the ball in my hand. That's the task, right? That's the real challenge here. But they've got a flaw in their system. And the thing about their system is that every, after every game, they're going to – the first two guys to make shots, it's called shooting for capital. The first two guys to make shots – get to pick team. So I started getting myself to the edge of the court where I know the game's going to end by that goal. And me people are looking at me like, what's this white guy doing out here, man? He's not even supposed to be on the basketball court. But as soon as that ball went through that basket on that last shot, I went and fell on it like a fumble drill in football, Randy. And I came <laughs> up with that ball in my hand and the entire basketball court circled up around me. There's nothing but a sea of angry black faces looking at me, screaming at me. But give us that ball, white boy. What the hell do you think you're doing touching our ball? And with the toughest voice I could find, and it wasn't much, I said, hey, man, I'm going to shoot for teams today. I'm going to play basketball today. Ooh, these guys were incredulous, Randy. They were mm-hmm. screaming and barking. We're going to kill you, white boy. Don't you know we're going to kill you? And I'm scared to death. And uh, the biggest guy out there, this blood from Houston, like Jay Blood, he jumps up and he says, you know what, white boy? Get up on the line and shoot that shot. I hope you make it. So here I am standing at this free throw line with this basketball in my hand, Randy. It feels like it's a damn medicine ball at this point. And I'm thinking, man, damn it. 
this is the dumbest thing you've ever done. <laughs> because here's the deal. If I miss this shot, these guys are going to really kill me. Because I didn't just disrespect the basketball court. I disrespected an entire race. If I make it, they're going to hurt me. They don't want me out there. But you know what? I came out here to earn some respect a different way. I'm going to get on this court. So I steal my nerve. If it is to be, it's up to me. I make my shot. I get to be a team captain. Jay Blood makes his shot. He gets to be a team captain, too. So now we got we pick our teams. We've got a five-on-five five game, right? Wrong, man. It's nine-on-one. <laughs> Nobody wants me out there. My, my old teammates don't want me out there, man. And, and I mean, and this is prison basketball in the life sentence building. There's no referees. There's no guards. There's no fouls. You can do anything you want. Punch, kick, scratch, bite, pull hair, whatever you want. That's basketball. Mm-hmm. After the first day, I got a black and a busted lip. And, and uh, you know, I survived. Come back out there on Tuesday. These guys are laughing. A lot of people laughing, Randy, when I got to I mean, a little white guy like me, a lot of people laughed at me, but they underestimated me. So I get out there that second day and on Tuesday, and they're laughing at me and say, hey, man, we thought you had enough, white boy. I say, hey, man, I thought you boys were playing basketball today. What's up? He's got a, it was quiet. You could have heard a pin drop. That, that J-boy guy, he steps up. He says, you know what, white boy, you're on my team today. And Randy, they gave it to me worse than I did the day before. And every chance I could, I could to give it back, I'd give it back. That's the whole point of this exercise, to earn some respect. You know, this went on for Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and they're picking me for every game now. Everybody wants to beat up on the whiteboard. And so on Saturday is when it when it happened. I'm standing around around half court. I mean, I don't even play offense at this point. I haven't seen a basketball since I shot that shot Monday. They don't pass the ball to me, but somebody passed it to me. I shoot it and I miss. A couple more times later, someone passed it to me too, and I shot it and I made it, and I heard the change. Good shot, West. West, I got my name back, Randy. They weren't mm-hmm. calling me white boy anymore. And that's what I tell kids all over the country and football players and all these college programs. It's so derogatory to call someone by the color of their skin. And that, that stopped that day. They called me West. I got my name back. I earned that, man. That felt good to mm-hmm. me. But after the game was over, they circled up around me kind of like they did six days before. And they said, man, West, you pulled something off out here. We'd never seen a white boy pull off before. You took everything we had, and you gave it back when you could, too. And Jay Blitz said, you know what, man, you've earned our respect, man. You've earned the right to exist out here. You don't have to worry about the blacks the rest of the time you're in prison. It made me immediately think about Mr. Jackson at Coffee Bean Story because I tell people all the time, you can't just think about how uncomfortable it was for me to be out there with all those black guys. Think about how uncomfortable it was for them to have me out there, man. I'm like an alien on another planet. You know, I don't even belong out there. But after six days of this, man, our worlds collided, and everybody made a change. They accepted me into their world, and I was, and I came in and accepted all them. And from then on, man, those guys came by my, my cell, G-Pod 45 cell. They banged on the door and said, Wes, let's go shoot some hoops. And so I found a place where I belonged. But I did not know that it was gathering so much negative attention that this was going to come back to bite me. See, I've always tried to take shortcuts in life, man. Always, man. My whole life, I've had the ability to be able to talk really well. I've had, I'm articulate. I think I'm pretty smart. I think I'm pretty special. That's my ego. That's that addiction that, you know, Damon's got this uniqueness quality inside of his mind. So... I thought I could take a shortcut with respect, like I've done everything else. Well, that story it sounds like you you definitely earned your respect with them at least. I did. I did with them at least. With them at least. <laughs> Big Blood can't promise me something like that. He can't promise to keep an entire race off of me because the way it works in prison, if if anybody that's of another race wants to jump on me, that other race can't say I'm taking up for the white. Man. That's 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 a cardinal sin that could cost right. him his life. So I come off the rec yard a couple of weeks later, man, and this little uh, Hispanic guy named Carlos pulls me aside. I'm getting ready to go eat in the shower. He says, Wes, I need to talk to you right now. So we go on the stairwell and talk. He said, hey, man, listen, I need to tell you something. He said, when you go to the shower today, old boy's coming for you. And old boy's talking about this guy's about 6'4", 260, big, big guy, black guy. 
loves to rape white guys, carries a knife around everywhere, loves to rape white guys. He said, you have gotten this guy's attention by going out there and playing basketball with all the black guys like this, dude. He said, now he's coming for you. He's coming to rape you in the shower. What are you going to do? This is really happening. And my first response is childish, childlike. And I said, hey, Carlos, that's cool, man. I just want him to take a shower today. He said, man, you're an idiot. He said, you got to take a shower at some point. He said, when you do, this guy's coming for you. What are you going to do? You're on the track and the train's coming. I'm like, Carlos, I don't even have a knife. Man, this guy's got a knife. Been fighting with a knife for 20 years, probably. And Carlos pulls a knife out of his pants. Carlos is short, too. I don't know even, even know where he's hiding this knife. <laughs> it's like this long. Pulls it out of his pants. And a knife in prison is any piece of metal that's been sharpened to a razor's edge. Got some tape wrapped around the handle. The movies do a really good job at depicting what a shank looks like. So he hands me this shank, and I'm holding it, man. The gravity of the situation is, wow, this is really happening. And it, and it dawns on me, this is a very personal weapon, a very close-quartered weapon. And I tell Carlos, I hand him the knife back. I'm like, man, I can't fight with a knife. This guy has been doing it for years. I, I can't fight with a knife. There's got to be another way, another weapon. So we go up to my cell. You know, in Texas prisons, they don't have air conditioning. It's not something they have. It's not mm-hmm. something I don't think they're ever going to. Oh, yeah. And you think about Beaumont, Texas mm-hmm. in July and August. It's hot. Right. But this is March 2010. So I've got these. They sell these little fans on commissary. I've got a fan. Carlos takes apart my fan, cuts out the motor inside the fan, weighs about five pounds. Puts that motor inside this little mesh commissary bag that I have that was used for a shower sack. And it makes like basically like a ball and chain flail, like a medieval weapon. Mm-hmm. that you swing, it's got a ball on the end of it. Yep. And he gives me instructions. He said, when you go to the shower today, don't wear your shower shoes, your flip-flops, wear your shoes. He said, you're going to fight for your life. He said, and when you go in there, turn that water on, get it real hot and steamy. And he said, you wait a little change area off to the side. He said, you wait. It's a one-man shower. He said, you wait. And when he comes through, when he pokes his head through that door, smash his head open like a melon, kill this guy. And he's telling me to kill him. So finally I accept, I'm going to go to the shower, I'm going to kill this guy because this is my life. I'm in prison. I'm two months into this 65-year sentence. I'm oh my gosh. Months. It's only two months in? All of this has happened within two months? Within two months of landing in the Mark Styles unit, yeah. I mean, oh my gosh. I mean, I've, I've been locked up for over a year at this point, but two months within being on the Styles unit, I'm getting ready to kill the guy. That is crazy. And yeah, it's about a 20-foot walk from myself to the shower, and I keep thinking to myself, Damn, Damon, how did you get here, man? You had everything in life. You had you were the quarterback. You you worked at Congress. You worked for a guy running for president. You you were a stockbroker. You were trained to be a stockbroker. You had everything in life. And now I'm getting ready to end my life because Carlos reminds me, you're never going to leave this place alive because you're either going to – this guy's going to either do something to you, he's going to have to kill you to get it done, or you're going to kill this guy. And once you do, you're going to get another life sentence. Or they may give you the lethal injection because you killed another inmate. So I accept that. I go in the shower and – do everything he says. And, and all I can hear in this shower is my heart beating. I think the people in the day room can hear it. I'm on the third run. I run 35 feet in the air. Maybe it's a minute and a half or two minutes or five minutes, but the guy finally pokes his head through, man. He's coming in. He's got this, this grin on his face. I remember this grin, and I just think to myself, man, I'm going to knock that grin off his face. And I swing that thing as hard as I can and scream this guttural basic instinct. I mean, this is because you're at the loser side of your brain at this point, man. It's very primitive when you're living in prison. Mm-hmm. And I rear back to hit this guy, and he raises up at the last second. I hit him right here in the chest. I mean, it shoots him out of that shower like a cartoon character getting shot out of a cannon. Boom! And he drops a knife from the ground. It's loud, too. A loud thud. And I'm on him, Randy. I'm beating him with this, this weapon. And I can, I can hear ribs cracking. I'm stepping on his head. About that time, two of his gang brothers fly up the stairs. He's a Mandingo warrior. Two of his gang brothers fly up the stairs. And they said, man, Wes, if you lay another hand on that dude, we're going to throw you off the run. This is three rubs. They're going to throw him off the run and kill me. Hmm. So I, gra- I gather myself, grab my bag, go back to my cell, and fall down against the wall and start crying. I fall asleep. That adrenaline burns off fast and I, and I knock myself out. And I wake up the next day and I'm, I'm scared to come out of the cell. 
because I don't know what it's going to be like when I find it, right? I mean, I almost killed a guy yesterday. But I come out of that cell, and it's an entirely different prison, man. Everybody in that prison saw what they've been waiting to see, that Damon West has taken another man's life. He had to. That I spoke the only language that people speak in prison fluently, which is violence. And you either speak violence or someone speaks it to you. But everybody understands the language, and they saw that I understood it. Never had to fight again. Never had wow. to fight again. And once that, once that terroristic threat of violence was gone from every day I left myself, I got to really work on myself. And I started working on myself in three phases of my life, spiritually, mentally, physically. I started working on myself every single day. I mean, I did. Because I watched all these guys work out and they got in shape physically. But what were they doing to feed themselves spiritually and emotionally? I mean, mentally, what were they? They weren't feeding themselves. That is, and Randy, you are what you eat. And I don't care if it's food. I don't care whatever it is. But you have to feed yourself the right stuff. Like, what kind of books do you read? I tell these guys, I ask these guys in the day room, man, look at what you're watching on TV. You know, you're Jerry Springer and your soap operas and all that, man. You don't, you're not feeding yourself the right stuff. And, and so I did. I read. I read everything I could. I, everything I get my hands on, books about religion, philosophy, you name it, uh, history, biographies, fiction, nonfiction. I read everything I could. I read a book every other day. But it wasn't until I went to these retreats they have in prison that these guys come in from the outside. These guys, they call them ACTS, Adoration Community Theology Service, or with the Catholic group. They come in, and these men come in for four days, and they come in there and they're in free world clothes. They leave their families behind, their jobs behind, their, their comfortable little lives behind, their homes, and they come into prison to spend time with 66 inmates who come through one of these retreats. And I learned a term through there, through their actions called servant leadership, which the secret to life is what I really learned. The secret to life, Randy, is serving others and being humble. That's it. Serving others and being humble. And when you live a life of serving others in humility, then you can really do something with yourself. When you live a life that you, you set out every day to try to see how you can help other people achieve their goals, help other people get to a different position in life, help raise them up, then you're really living, you know? And I had to get there. I had to get there. I had to get outside of myself. And it took coming to prison and getting stripped of everything, ego, pride, all that stuff had to be removed from my life. Meeting guys in prison, this guy that came in. So one of the guys that come, that goes into the prison retreats that I've met through prison retreat stuff is a guy named Joe Tatoris. Joe Tatoris, does his name sound familiar to you? No. Joe? Sorry. <laughs> Joe graduated Texas A&M in 1970. From okay. Beaumont, comes back to Beaumont, Texas. Starts a life with his wife, Shelly. And he opens up a little sandwich shop in 1976 in Beaumont, Texas. That little sandwich shop that had one store and four employees, that's Jason's Deli. Oh. He started Jason's Deli in 1976 in Beaumont. Today, Joe has 270 stores, 11,000 employees. And he cannot wait to get back into the prison every six months for four days to spend four days with a bunch of inmates. This guy can do anything he wants in life, and he cannot, he can't wait to get back into prison and practice servant leadership. So it's through guys like that, through Joe Tutoris and people like that, that I thought, you know what, man, this is exactly what I want to do with my life. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by 360 Solutions. Are you ready to work for yourself as a business consultant? 360 Solutions can give you everything you need to start, build, and run your own practice. In our 20 years in business, we've helped hundreds of people just like you live a fulfilling life developing organizations and leaders in your area. Visit 360 Solutions to learn more or come to one of our high-performance organization workshops. We're hosting them in Austin, Texas and Yosemite National Park this November. Find out more at 360hpworkshops.com. That's 360hpworkshops.com. 
So when that retreat was over, the Sunday the retreat was over, Thursday through Sunday. And during that retreat, Randy, I saw guys and they're the biggest, baddest guys in the joint. They're crying like babies. Man. Mm-hmm. Something was happening inside this prison gym. And I thought, man, this is this is magic. I want a piece of that. So I got back to to the to the dorm where I lived, and I got on the blue day room phone and called my mom. I said, Mom, I had the best time in prison this weekend. She's like, Well, <laughs> my poor mom, Randy, she's been through it all. So she's here. She's like, Well, Damon, tell me what the best time in prison sounds like. And I said, Mom, it was unbelievable. I went into these guys came in, the axe guys, and some of them knew you, some of them knew dad, some of them watched me play football in high school because they're all from this area. We all live in the same right. area. I said, Mom, when I got when I get out of prison, I got to find these guys. I got to be a part of this axe group. And she's like, Yeah, baby, I believe you will. I, I think you really changed. But the underlying thing is here, Randy, is what we're talking about. We're talking about something we don't, both of us probably don't believe will ever happen because I think they're going to be dead by the time I get out of prison. And mm-hmm. they probably think they will be too because the state of Texas can literally keep me for, seven, for 65 years. So while I'm there, I start working on myself, Randy. I, I get into recovery. Recovery is the most important thing I have in my life. And, and I'll always give this as, disclaimer is I don't speak for AA, but AA is the recovery group I got into. The recovery group I'm in today. But I don't speak for them. They always want me to be sure I give that disclaimer. But I got into recovery and I learned about these four spiritual principles that run, you know, they call them the four absolutes. It's unselfish, honest, pure, and loving. If the things I want, it's like a test. I have to ask myself, the things I want to do, is it unselfish, is it honest, pure, if it's loving? If it's not, then I have to stay away from it. Because mm-hmm. if it's not unselfish, honest, pure, and loving, it's over here on the other side of life, on the other side of the spectrum, where it's selfish, self-seeking, self-want. Self-delusion, man. Self-delusion, Randy, is when you believe you're on crap, when you start thinking you're pretty good. And my whole life, I had been living in self-delusion. But now I had a program of recovery. I'm closer to God. God's carrying me around this prison, Rod. And, and I've got goals in life. I'm set goals. And a, a teacher wrote me, a, a junior high, my favorite teacher from junior high, Mr. Jellin, wrote me and said, you know, when you get out of prison one day, you need to consider sharing your story with other kids. He said, mm-hmm. because you have had a, a remarkable life. He said, you can help other people. And this is the goal that keeps me going every day that, hey, when I get out one day, I'll be able to do this. I'll be able to go share the story. And uh, I changed my prayer up. You know, that prayer, that crazy prayer that I had in county jail. But, hey, God, get me out of here so I can smoke meth again. Let me make a deal with you, God. <laughs> I get up every day and say the same prayer that I learned in recovery in prison. It's simple. It's two parts. God, put in front of me what you need me to do today for you. And let me recognize it when I see it. Because I don't want to miss that. I don't right. want to miss that. Life. Everything takes care of itself. But there was one element I was missing. One element I was missing because... Remember, I've got all this ego, and I'm an addict, and I'm Damon West, and I and I sit back there behind the curtain, and the wizard, I, I control these mechanisms, I manipulate everybody, do what I want them to do. I got into a recovery meeting one morning. The guy that brings the meeting to the styles unit says, hey, Damon, get up there and lead us in the serenity prayer and tell us what it means. And so I said the serenity prayer. You know the serenity prayer. God mm-hmm. grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, to courage to change the things I can, the wisdom of the difference, mm-hmm. every addict of it. So I tell him what I think it means, and he says, you're wrong. Sit down. So I sit down. I think, well, I was handled pretty rough, but he gets on the chalkboard and draws a line from one side of the chalkboard to the other. He says, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. He said, everything we cannot change is on God's line. He said, don't think that that line is just a chalkboard. He said, that goes from horizon to horizon of the earth. That's a big line. He said, the courage to change the things we can't. And he goes and he takes his fingers about an inch apart and erases a little inch out of that line. He said, the things that we can change in life are inside that line that God gives us right there, that little inch. That's the scale of what your line is if God's is from horizon to horizon. He said, Damon, there's four things inside that line, four things we control in this life. Let me tell you the four things you control, what you think, what you say, what you feel, and most importantly, because everybody's going to see this, what you do. He said, those are the four things you control in life. 
He said, quit thinking you control all this other stuff. You don't control anything else. So get that idea out of your head because addicts, he said, as an addict, we have a hard time understanding that. That's the last part of the prayer is the wisdom to know the difference between that long line and that little inch line. I like that. So understand where you are. You're inside that one little inch and work on those four things every day, Damon. What you think, what you say, what you feel, what you do, that's all you control. And Randy, with that, I was off to the races because I had all the tools now. I had a program of recovery. I had God in the right place. We're driving the car. I'm just a passenger. And I'm not trying to out. I'm not, I'm not out there trying to manipulate things to try to control everything around me. And this unselfish, honest, pure, and loving, that's a great test. Put yourself through. And do I do that test perfectly? No, not even this day. I'm flawed. I'm a human being. I make mistakes all the time. But I have a scale. I have a ruler, a ruler with what to measure myself by. I can, I can put the ruler up next to it. And so I work on myself. And, I, and I, my family, they never give up on me. They came to see me over 150 times in prison. 150 times is unheard of in that place. If you were in prison for 10 years and you got five visits the entire time, you're one of the richest guys in the joint. It's the most lonely place I've ever been in. And I, at mail call, mail call, all the inmates watch Monday through Friday in every prison in Texas from 6.30 to 8 o'clock. They're going to have a mail call. And at mail call, every inmate will watch to see who gets mail because they use that for two things. They, they want to see what kind of mail you get. Because if you get books and magazines, people want to get in line to get those too. Right. But they also watch it to see who has someone out there that loves them and cares for them. Because it's perceived that if you have someone that sends you mail, then someone out there cares for you. You may not be extorted. You may not be raped. You may not be have to, have to fight for your life because if someone sees that you're not connected to the outside world and they're a predator, they might come after you mm-hmm. because they know that you have no one you can call. I saw guys in prison write letters to themselves once a month. They're indigent. They have no one out there. And you get five, I think, five envelopes, five sheets of paper, and five stamps every month. And you can, that's what the state of Texas gives you if you're indigent. And they would take one of these envelopes or one of these pieces of paper, write themselves a, a letter, mail it, address it to themselves, drop it in the mailbox on the way to breakfast at 4.30 in the morning, by the way. And then get that letter back two days later just to have their name called out at mail call. That's how lonely and desolate the place is. Hmm. It's the most hopeless place in the world. But on November 16, 2015, the state of Texas said, you know what, Damon? We're going to let you go. We're going to give you this one shot. And a lot of things have happened up to that point, November 16, 2015. You know, back in 2012, while I'm in prison, everybody that's in prison wants to get out, right? Everybody in there wants to get out. What city are you in? We're in Waco. You're in Waco. Okay. Yeah. Perfect setting for this part of the story. <laughs> so I do some legal work. The only way you're going to get escape from prison is going, going in through the courts. You're not going over the fence. They're going to shoot. Right. So I get in the, the law library. I have a guy teach me how to use the books in there. And I pay this guy two bags of coffee and he shows me what the books do in the law library. And with that, I'm off the races because all of these jailhouse lawyers will tell you, oh, I can get you out of prison for a hundred dollars worth of commissary. And I didn't believe it. I just didn't believe that some soup, some soups, some coffee and some stamps is going to get me out of prison. I got myself into a pretty big jam. hundred dollars in commissary is not going to do it. <laughs> so I get in there. And I'm like, you know what? I have a brain. I'll go use it. So I go in there and I research and it takes me two months to put together this appeal. It's called a writ of habeas corpus. I send a copy of this back in 2012 to this attorney named Walter Humphrey. And Mr. Humphrey is Humphrey from Provost Humphrey Law Firm in Beaumont, Texas. He's also the Mr. Humphrey from the, the Sheila and Walter Humphrey School of Law at Baylor University. Okay. So, yeah. So it's right there, right where you are in Waco. And I send him a copy of my writ with a note attached to it, asking him, hey, Mr. Humphrey, he's an old family friend. Mr. Humphrey, can you please have one of your lawyers at your firm look over my writ and tell me how bad the court of criminal appeals is going to beat me at trial? And a couple months later, I get word back from Mr. Humphrey, and he says, hey, Damon, you put together a hell of a writ for a guy that's never been to law school. Mm -hmm. He says, when you get out of prison one day, 
let me know. Come see me. I may have a job. And so November 16, 2015, on the Monday, I walk out of prison for the first time, a free man. And let me tell you something. And it's a trick of the mind. It has to be. But as soon as that gate rolled and I got to step onto the other side of that gate, the ground felt different. The sky was blue. The trees were greener. I mean, the air smelled different. And everything's so different. And it's a trick of the mind. I know it has to be, man. But you immediately feel like something just left you, Randy. I see my parents in that parking lot, and I run to them, and, and we hug, and we're crying. And I remember the last order I got five minutes before from the sergeant that walked us out was get off of our property as quickly as you can. So I start shoving my parents in the car like we robbed a bank. I'm like, let's get out of here. Let's go. And so I get in the car, and my dad's behind the wheel. My mom's riding shotgun. I'm in the back seat. I'm like, let's go. Let's go. My dad's like, all right, let's go get that Whataburger. Because, I mean, if you've been locked up for seven years and three months, you want Whataburger too, right? That's a pretty so, good one. Yeah. That's, oh, that's legit. Oh, I couldn't wait to go. But my mom said, hang on, Bob, don't start that car. And I look at my mom, but she's got a second head. I'm like, Mom, let's get out of here. They told us we had to go. She said, hang on a second. She said, I got three tools you're going to need to finish, to, to live this life. She said, three tools for life. First thing she gave me, Randy, was an iPhone. Now, when I got arrested in 2008, phones had buttons. I had never seen it. I couldn't even get the thing to light up. She said, <laughs> she just my frustration. She, she tells me, she's like, I'll show you how to use it. Second thing she gave me was a driver's license. I found a way while I was in prison to renew my driver's license and not get hit with any fines. I mean, I haven't even driven a golf cart in seven years. But next, <laughs> like, yeah, we'll let you drive. And so she says, Damon, you got this phone that can stay in touch with the world. She's telling me about social media and FaceTime. FaceTime, that's like a game changer. I've never heard of a video conference in your pocket. She said, these phones can do everything. She said, and you've got a driver's license. You can drive anywhere you want to go. She said, you can borrow my truck till you get your own car. She said, what are you missing? What's my mom? So I know it's something spiritual, but for Randy, for the first time in 40 years, I'm 40 years old when I walk out of prison, one month into my 40th, 40th year, I tell my mom, Mom, I got you this time. I finally got you. I said, Mom, I got a new relationship with God. He's driving the car. I'm just riding. I'm a pastor. I know, I know, I know who, who pulls the strings. I said, I've got my Bible. I've got my rosary. I said, Mom, really, what is it spiritual that you're going to give me that I don't have? And she says, Damon, you always did talk too much. She said, stick out your wrist. So I stuck out my wrist, and she put this bracelet on me. This bracelet is a bunch of fish hooks connected to each other. She said, Damon, these bracelets are what all the people, all the men and women in our community, the Axe community, wear back home. And she said, there's thousands of men and women that are your brothers and sisters in the Axe community. The Axe, remember these retreats I went on? Right. She said, there's, there's thousands of them waiting for you to get out because they've all been through the same retreat that you've been through. She said, baby, she said, go find your friends. I said, I, she said, I signed you up for an action retreat for two months. You're going to go on your first action retreat. Go out and go find your friends. And it was really one of the greatest gifts my mom could give me because I went to that retreat two months later, and it was the same thing, man, that servant leadership. These guys, man, I sit around for that retreat, Randy, and these guys share with me their successes in life and business and community and family. But more importantly, they share with me their failures in life, business, community and family. You know, divorce, things happen, you know, jobs, people get fired, death, mistakes that are made along the way. But they gave me all this. And they must have thought I was living under a rock this whole time because I'm asking them questions about life. And yeah, I, I sure, I'm sure I look like I lived under a rock too, but they did, man. They, they took me in and, you know, with the job at Provost Humphrey, which I met with Mr. Humphrey the day after I got out of prison, they gave me a job here. With that, with my new family, with the Axe community, my new relationship with life, my recovery program, which is the most important thing I have going, things started falling into place. God's opened a lot of doors up. And, you know, I've been out of prison 22 months now, and I get to go all over the country. I get to go all over the country, speak to college football programs. I've been everywhere. I've spoken to Nick Saban's football team two months ago. 
Dabo Sweeney's football team in Clemson a couple months ago. A&M, I've been to Pittsburgh. I've been all over the place to speak to college football teams. I get to speak to schools, to churches. I've spoken to tens of thousands of kids and shared with them my story about the dangers of drugs and the consequences of bad decisions, but also a message of hope. But the best thing I have going, Randy, the best thing I've got going in this new life is I get to give back in a way that I have the most unique currency in the world to spend with the incarcerated. I have finally gotten parole down here in Jefferson County, where I am, to allow me to have these parolees. When they get a, every Thursday, they get a new batch of parolees right out of prison. And they let me be the first one they get to hear from. And I come in there and I go into this room. Sometimes it's five people, sometimes it's 35 people. And I sit there and have a frank conversation with them about what life's going to be like. And I have a unique currency to spend. Because just like when I go into prison, everybody in that room is going to look at me and says, well, okay, I guess I'll listen to this guy because it's not like he didn't have a lot of time. I've got a life sentence. I'm on parole until 2073, you know? I can't mess up again. And they're going to say, it's not, well, it's not like you did time on a real unit. No, I did time on one of the harshest units that were there was in the state of Texas. Right. And that currency I get to spend with them when they get out of prison, and I get to go back into prison. I was in prison this past weekend, the Michaels Unit, Palestine, Texas, Tennessee Colony, with a guy named Bob Bodine. Bob Bodine is an author of some books. Uh, one of them's called The Power of Who, and another, another one's called Two Shares. But we went into this prison and spent a whole day in there and I get to go in with guys like that. I get to go in for these act retreats. I get to go into prison now, Randy, for these same act retreats that I was on. I get to go in there to my same unit, the Mark Stiles unit, with Joe Tatori. We're doing a retreat next month in November. Joe's the director, and he may be his co-director. I mean, what an honor, right? And I get to go in there and be the guy. And every inmate to a team will come up to me and say, Damon, you bring us hope. It brings us hope to see you come in here like this, that one day somebody will take us seriously. But when I give my presentation to these guys, Randy, I get to really give it to them and tell them, look, if you want something different in life, you have to do something different. You have to make that change today. You can't just expect everything to come to you. You've got to realize that we don't just have in common that we're ex-cons and we're convicts. We also have in common that we all have victims. You know, There's nobody wearing white in the Texas prison system that doesn't have a victim. I tell them all the time, I don't care if you're here for a drug charge. You've got a victim. You left somebody behind. You've got a victim. But it's in the hope, in, 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 the, in the belief, not just the hope. Yeah, I'm going to go into each of those prisons, and I'm going to come out with a couple coffee beans. A couple <laughs> coffee beans. A couple of guys that want to change your life, that want to be a positive force for change and change that prison from the inside out. And, and I find coffee beans everywhere, man, in high schools and churches and college football programs. Programs like Georgia even have posters up around the locker room in Kansas and, and SMU. It says, you know, be a coffee bean. Be a coffee bean. <laughs> I mean, who knew, man? This old guy named Mr. Jackson gives me this story in county jail back in 2009, and it's taken off like wildfire around the country. And I get to be the humble servant, the flawed, humble servant, the flawed, humble messenger of that beautiful message of being a coffee bean. You ask me who I minister to, man, I'll minister to anybody. I get calls from parents. They, they ask me to come talk to their kids. I mean, I'll, I'll do phone calls with anybody. I talk to people in different parts of the country. And I tell them the same thing, though. Me talking to somebody that's got an addiction issue is not going to help unless they're done, unless they're ready to. Because mm-hmm. you have to be receptive to that message, just like an addict that, hey, it's time to stop. You know, you're going to be done. You got to surrender. And, and the same thing I tell them with addicts all the time they have to admit they're powerless. They have to be honest, open minded, and willing to go to any lengths they have to to stop their addiction, to, to, get, to get into recovery. And, you know, I can't work miracles, but if someone's ready to work, then I'm ready to work with them. There's a common theme I'm seeing with some people that I've been interviewing recently, and your story is a perfect example of this, is that there's kind of a lack of ownership for actions these days. It seems like people want to 
you know, gloss over their mistakes and, and keep moving on. And, and it sounds like in your situation, especially when you were younger, you weren't able to fully take responsibility for your actions. But now right. you've been able to, over time, kind of see how that's a really important trait to what you're doing now. There's two things that are required of a person to be a complete human being and, and be a be a positive person in society. You have to have ownership of your mistakes, like you talked about. You have to, mm-hmm. to take responsibility and you have to have empathy. All right. A leader who cannot take responsibility for their mistakes and has no empathy is a psychopath and a tyrant. If you're lacking those things, then you are not fit to lead anybody. And so if I want to lead, if I want to say, hey, look, I've got this, and I do, I've got this great message. God's given me this unbelievable story, this great story. And I think that there's a there's a quick pro quo with God, because it's almost like God says, hey, Damon, we're going to let you out. You're, you're done. You're done doing this. The heavy lifting's over. But you got to go to work for me. Mm-hmm. You got to go out and do some things. I need you to bring a message out there, a message of hope, and let your life be a warning to others. It takes humility. You know, if you don't have humility and, and empathy and, and responsibility, and that comes with humility, but it, it takes it takes humility to be responsible for the things you do, then you can't be the deliverer of that message. I couldn't be the deliverer of that message. Who wants to listen to that guy? No one does. Mm-hmm. I mean, now you'll see people out there that manage to get in leadership positions that have no empathy, that have no ability to lead the right way, and yet they still lead. But that all comes to a head. That all comes to a head because people see that the emperor has no clothes. And the last thing I want to be remembered for is that hypocritical guy that went out there and said one thing and did another. It takes me being responsible. If I'm going to be responsible for the things I did, then I need to not repeat those mistakes. So I really love your message about the coffee bean and that you you change the environment. The environment doesn't change you. Did you learn any other really good tips and things that you've been able to put into yourself that you tell to people to kind of help them through? I guess another thing that I learned in prison is that you're capable of way more than you think you are. And that little voice inside your head that tells you you can't do that, that's not the one to listen to. Another piece of advice I learned, there's a difference between prayer and meditation. Prayer is when you're asking God for something, but meditation is when you're listening for the answer. If you don't listen to what God has God has to tell you, then if you don't listen to what God has to tell you, then how are you ever going to get your instructions? Bob Bodine's book, Two Chairs, is, is basically a book about going there and setting out two chairs every morning. One chair for you, one chair for God. He said, but you got to flip it. you got to put an 80-20 rule in this thing. You talk 20% of the time, and you listen 80% of the time. Another another little thing I picked up along the way was listen in silent or spelled with the same letter. Never knew that until I got to prison. It took a lot of situational observation paying attention. I had to be removed of my pride, my ego, and most importantly, my fears. Fears are like the boogeyman. Fears should be ranked up there with theft because they still steal so much from us. You know, we, we make fears in our head bigger than what they are. And fears can be real, but most fears are elevated to a level they shouldn't be. We allow that. The lesson that I got from some of your stuff is that the world will try and create enemies of people that don't necessarily need to be enemies. And when you find that common ground, you can come together. Like it probably would have been easier for you to just say, I'm going to identify with some Aryan Brotherhood family and have that protection based on what I look like. That's the easy road. But I'm going to choose to deny that. And not only that, but I'm going to seek out the respect of the black guys over here that are not like me and try and earn their respect. I took the most difficult path to go through. Because, I mean, I'm 33 years old when I come into prison, and I'm at gang recruiting age. But I take the most difficult path there is because every man, just like in county jail, everybody's telling me, white, black, Hispanic, everything, you got to get into a gang. And the problem with what I did is, is that 
I make it uncomfortable for everybody because all the whites want me to get into a gang. The blacks want me to get into a white gang because race runs everything, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that's why whenever I get done fighting the white guys, I'm going to have to fight the black guys too because the blacks are trying to push me into the gang. So they'll come and sometimes more than one at a time because I'm going against the grain. I'm going against the status quo. And the status quo says you get with your own kind and stay with your own kind. You can't eat meals with black guys or Hispanic guys. You eat with white people. You know, you hang out with white people because you're white. But I couldn't do that. I, th- I thought if I thought if I did that, Randy, I would sell my soul and I wouldn't get it back. And, and, and I was proved right because I watched all these other guys. A lot of those guys in those gangs, white gangs and black gangs alike, and even Hispanic gangs, they don't want to be there. They hate it. They're miserable. They had to buy into a collective ideology of hate to survive because they gave up. They surrendered and became that carrot. You know, they think they're being the egg, they're being hard, but they became that carrot because they got soft and mushy and didn't want to stick it out, didn't want to fight, and they lost their autonomy along the way. And now they're they're in, like I said, I call it a collective ideology of hate because you assume the, the baggage of everybody around you. You know, I don't think most people are born that way. Hmm. I think people in general don't want to be like that. And, and I didn't ever want to succumb to that and be like that. But it was against the grain. Man. No one wanted me to do this independent thing because – the whites especially didn't want it because now you got this white guy running around that can get through a fight anytime. A racial war can get started like that. Mm-hmm. If it's one of their own, you're not going to just jump on a white guy. You got to go through the whole gang to do that. But if I had to do it 10 times out of 10, I'd do it the same way. And I'm assuming that when you went to these axe retreats, that it wasn't just white guys or black guys or Hispanic guys. No, it was everybody, man. It was everybody. All all races. Isn't that all funny? Faith, <laughs> all, yeah, all faiths, everything, man. Because these axe guys... They're fishers of men. That's why these bracelets are little hooks. They call them fishers of men. We go in and they go in there. Well, we, I get to go in there now as, as one of the action guys. We're going in there. We're, they're not trying to convert anybody to, the, to Catholicism. I mean, it's just a Catholic group that has to put it on. All they're trying to do is bring people closer to God. And they take people that are people that are devil worshipers get to come in there because they, they have all faiths have to be able to worship in a prison. And in a prison, they have people that go into these weekends and witches and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But they have Jews, they have Catholics, they have Baptists, they have Methodists, they have Muslims, they have everybody. And they're all racist. They're all different sizes and shape. It looks like America. It looks like the America when America's functioning in the right way. You know what I'm saying? It seems like when you're kind of working for yourself and working from a place of fear and like, I just need to get through this, that you fall into this well, it's us versus them, even though you're all inside prison. But as soon as you guys can come to a realization that I'm not doing so hot myself, I need recovery, I need to be better, that's when you come into a group that's multicultural. Recovery is exactly like that. Does that sound familiar, though? Us against them, oh, yeah. ruling by fear, all that? I feel like it's a, a huge thing right now where people are making enemies of people that don't need to be their enemy, and they should look at that's more what? of what the common ground is instead of, why are we fighting each other in the first place? We should all be that's brothers. Yeah. It's it's the perfect metaphor for what you're seeing right now. I mean, you're seeing you're seeing people split along lines because of fear. Well, mm-hmm. I tell you about fear, Randy. Fear is in your head, man. Fear is made up. But if you get the wrong person that tries to feed on that fear, then you get a situation where where those fears become real. The perception becomes reality, you know, or your reality becomes perception. I mean, there's some good stuff out there. Books I read, uh, George Orwell, great stuff. There's mm-hmm. a book on Animal Farm that he wrote. Oh yeah. <laughs> Animal Farm was great. They had this one pig that got off the farm named Snowball. But Snowball got out of there, and every time something happened, they would blame Snowball for it. Mm-hmm. Snowball. It's always Snowball's fault. Snowball's not even around. Snowball's not even around, but they created Snowball to be this big, bad boogeyman. 
not to get into politics, but you can see a lot of that stuff going on now. These fears, when you get the wrong person, and that's what you have in there. It's, it's pretty much the mirror image of what you're seeing. You get these fears in there. When you get in there, they tell you, oh, you're going to have to get with us. You know, that the white gangs are saying this. The white gangs will say you have to get with us. You know, they're going to come for you. They're going to do this to you. They're going to do that. And you know what? It's going to be tough. They're going to come for you. But if you stand your ground, you don't have to get with either of them. You get to be yourself. And by the time I left prison, my nickname, everybody gets a nickname in prison. My nickname was the mayor, the mayor of styles. They <laughs> called me the mayor because everybody's like, oh, my God, it's like you're running for office. Everywhere I went around that prison, everybody knew my name. I'd shake people's hands and talk to them. And they're like, man, it's like you're the politician of this unit. They started calling me Mayor West. So I am around more people on the outside of prison that are locked up than I ever was on that 3,000-man unit they called the Mark Styles unit, hell on earth. You know why? Because more people are imprisoned by their thoughts than my steel bars. I'm around so many locked up people, and I don't have to be one of them. I have a choice. You know, everybody has a choice in that. But I have perspective, and God has given me perspective in spades. My worst day out here is better than my best day in prison. You know, there's not a lot you can do to knock me off life right now. I mean, I, as long as I stay, but I have to stay in that program of recovery. If I lose my program of recovery, I lose everything. Anything I put in front of my recovery, I will lose. My sponsor beats that into my head all the time. He says, Damon, anything you put in front of your recovery, you will lose. You will lose it. These coffee beans I get to create, if I ever put all that in front of my recovery and say, you know what, I don't need to go to meetings anymore. I'm good. I'm, I'm healed. Man, if I ever say I'm healed, I'm in trouble because I'm an addict, man. I'm an addict. I will never be healed, but I can get better. That's you putting your ego ahead of what you know works for you and is right. helpful for you. If, I, if it ever becomes about me and not about my story, I'm screwed. I'm screwed. I might as well just go turn myself in. And I know it's not any way, shape or form closer to that, to your situation. But I remember growing up, my first car was like a total junker, you know, and I hated driving it around. I was really embarrassed. And when I finally got a car that was not even a nice car, but just nicer than that one, I was like, oh, heavens, I'm, I'm in a luxury model now. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure every day for you, you're like, man, you know, today didn't go so good. It was, it was rainy. I was late for something. My car broke down, but you're like, man, I'm, I'm on the outside. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. And and, and Randy, if I need a reminder, I drive by the styles unit every day to and from work. I get to go by the styles unit, drive by it, say a little prayer of thanks and keep on going, you know, and I get to go. I was just in the styles unit yesterday talking to the warden because we're getting ready to do this retreat. And I told him, thank you. Thank you for letting me come back in here every six months these retreats because not only does it help these other guys but it helps me to dip my toe in that toxic water four days and not only that but get my senses immersed in this place i mean once you get your sense of sight smell taste hearing everything gets locked into the prison touch man you're in prison you realize you're in prison but you get to leave every night so when you're on the outside and you're working in a you know a corporate job now what are some of the things that you found from your time behind bars that helps you kind of navigate in the corporate world now? Time, time management, because here's the deal. When you're in prison, all you have is time. When I was in prison, I had to look at time like, okay, I've got to be doing something for the next several hours anyway, so I might as well be doing this. I would run on the rec yard. I'd go run on the rec yard for an hour at rec or an hour and 20 minutes, whatever, because in my mind, I'd be like, well, I've got to be doing something for the next hour and 20 minutes. So any task I'm given, I can look at it in the same way. Man, I've got to be doing something to occupy the next time. And it's that perspective thing you talked about. I mean, what kind of job they're going to give me that's going to be too hard? It's better than being the chaplain's clerk inside the prison or the unit supply clerk inside the prison or the medical clerk inside the prison, which is what my jobs were. They were good jobs in prison, but out here, this is good. 
Excellent. So if people are looking to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Website, DamonWest.org. And you can find my email address on there, Damon at DamonWest.org. Shoot me an email. Let me know. I do as much speaking as I can. The firm I work for, Provost Airfield Law Firm, these people have been so good to me. The biggest part of my story, mm-hmm. the biggest part of my story is the Provost Airfield Law Firm. Without that element, because I mean, if if I would have just gotten out and I'm flipping burgers somewhere, no one wants to hear my story. But man, I walked out of hell and ended up, this may be a one in a million type job. It is a one in a million type job. But not only that, but they have seen this thing grow over time. And to them, it's a public service project for them to be associated with too. So they allow me all this time off to go speak, go out and do these presentations because they see the value of it in the, in the community. They see that it helps them too. So it, it's good. It's a win-win for everybody. And so they, they allow me the time to go do it. So Damon at DamonWest.org, Damon at DamonWest.org is your email address. You get in touch with me. Let me know. I'll try to come out and speak to your, your church, your kids, your football team, your athletic departments, anything, colleges, high school, whatever. Are you going to write a book or anything like that? Just finished it. You just finished it? Just finished it two weeks ago. In fact, the call I had before you was with my literary agent in Manhattan. So we're in the process of it. I can't give out too many details of it, but it's, it's going to be good. They're going to, he's going to be talking with the studio, movie studios and television studios and stuff like that. We'll see. We'll see where that all goes. I wrote it. I've never written a book before, so I, I can't imagine I'm that good at it. But <laughs> I gave him my best shot. It's like you asked me about taking on the task. I mean, there's nothing I, I feel like, hey, look, I'm going to try this and, and I'll fail. So what? Mm-hmm. You know, I'll try it, you know. My bucket list gets a lot bigger because, hey, I'll try, I'll try just about anything if, if I think I can, you know, even if I can't accomplish it, I'll try it and fail. I fought all those fights in prison. I didn't win, mm-hmm. you know, but like Jackson said, you don't have to win all your fights, but you do have to fight all your fights. That's a lesson in life. You know, fights in life. You're going to get your butt knocked down sometimes. Got to get back up. All right. Well, I hope everyone learned a lot. I hope you, everyone enjoyed your story and really learned some good lessons. I know I have, and we'll love to have you back on sometime. So thanks for I'd your time. You, Thank you, man. Thank all right. you so much. Thanks for listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Every little bit helps. Our website is hpleadershippodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hpleadershippodcast. Follow us on Twitter at hpl underscore podcast. And shoot us an email at podcast at 360solutions.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.